Back to the full cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. Usually, when someone says that they they don't make them like that anymore, what they're really saying is that something is dead and buried. The Horseshoe Tavern in downtown Toronto has had the last right set over it many times, and yet it still stands to this day, still punching out great music. And thus, we can truly say of this music icon, they don't make them like that anymore. For music fans of a certain vintage. The shoe was part of a fabric of growing up in downtown Toronto. I enrolled at the U of T in 1972, and nights spent at the shoe or Grossman's Tavern of the Elmo was like a curriculum in music history, jazz, blues, and classic country pounding out the doors at night. While the Elmo got worldwide fame because of the Stones and Margaret, true aficionados of live music will probably tell you it was the shoe that was the real deal, playing country when everyone else was pop, or punk when everyone else was disco, or grunge when everyone else was art house. David McPherson has done us all the great favor of cataloging the lore and the legend of the joint at Queen and Spadina in his new book, The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern. He joins us today on The Full Count to describe a place that, well, it's indelible in the history of not just Toronto, but Canadian music. Hi, David. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem, no problem. Describe the, the Queen and Spadina neighborhood back in the 60s when, they, when the, uh, the shoe got started. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I mean, the shoe, what a lot of people don't know, I mean, it started way back in 1947. And I mean, it, it wasn't a music bar for the first while. And of course, Toronto at that time was post-war. Um, it, that Queen and Spadine era was very blue collar. And there wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of music around. There wasn't uh, a lot of traffic even. I mean, it was a pretty dead zone, if you will. Uh, and, and the neat story is uh, Jack Starr, who is a, a Jewish businessman who who was more into the uh, what they called the schmutta business, the clothing uh, industry and garment uh, industry that was very popular in that area. He just uh, surprised his family one uh, weekend uh, and said that he bought this tavern and he was going to open up uh, a bar. Yeah, you talk about Jack, uh, the, the inimitable Jack Star. How, how did he go from schmutta kid to music impresario? Uh, there's still a lot of mystery surrounding that. I mean, I, for the book, I interviewed some family members, including his daughter. And, and she basically said that, uh, you know, she doesn't know what got into his bonnet, you know, to use the expression to, she came home from camp and, uh, her, her dad said, Hey, I've, I bought this tavern. Uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah. You know, I think a little bit, he, he was a, a very astute businessman and entrepreneur and he probably saw that uh, and was aware that there was some new liquor licensing acts, uh, grants coming in, and, and saw an opportunity to uh, open up a tavern in kind of this blue-collar area. You, you mentioned that, well, I, I knew this myself from living in that part of the town, that uh, it was pretty much a no-go area. It certainly wasn't where the hip people showed up, etc. So, so who did he want to reach with a country music bar in this neighborhood? Well, like I said, I mean, he opened it initially as just a tavern where, you know, on Sunday nights they'd have, you know, the prime rib dinner and steaks and burgers, that kind of thing. And uh, it was more a drinking hole, uh, to be honest, in the you know first five, six plus years of its existence. Um, so he was catering to the, uh, the blue collar workers that uh, lived in that area. Uh, but then when it came to music, it was another kind of fortuitous. Uh, he saw the opportunity. Uh, a lot of the early patrons were these blue collar workers had moved to Toronto uh, from the East Coast post-war looking for jobs. Uh, 
and they were music lovers. So, you know, as the story goes, one day Jack was walking through the bar, as he often did, and, you know, a couple patrons said, hey, Jack, you should get some music in here. And uh, he said, okay, you know, what kind of music? And they said, they said country, of course, right? Because, you know, being Newfoundlanders and East Coasters, they love their country music. So that's kind of how, you know, country arrived. And next thing you know, it became Nashville North. And, you know, all the grand old Opry stars would uh, stop into the shoe. It was uh, the place to hear music. Everyone from Loretta Lynn to uh, little Jimmy Dickens, Charlie Pride, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. It was pretty impressive. And that was the part that fascinated me the most in my research that I wasn't quite aware of, of that rich uh, history in terms of uh, country music. Yeah, you can, you can walk into the shoe these days and look at sort of the, the layout of the place, the, the, etc. What was the layout in those days when they first started doing music? Because you, you said it started as a restaurant, but you can't have music in a restaurant. You've got to sort of do a stage and stuff. What was the, the layout like if you went and watched uh, Little Jimmy Dickens or one of those guys in that era? Yeah, it was it was quite different. And it, it, what a lot of people don't know, I mean, the horseshoe was double the size at one point, too. And uh, it was more lots of tables and uh, the stage... Uh, was kind of more off to the side, but uh, yeah, and it was very close at one time. The stage was literally, you know, it was more that intimate. People were surrounding the stage. Uh, I mean, you can get a little bit of a sense of it a bit later on if you, you look online and see the Stompin' Tom uh, movie about him playing at the horseshoe. You can see all these people that are just crowded around the stage, uh, you know, drinking their little stubby beers, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, with uh, Tom just inches from them. But uh, yeah, it was quite a different different vibe in those days. And uh, the, other, the other interesting fact is that it is, you know, uh, a tale of two bars uh, for many of those years. There's always been kind of the front bar that's, uh, you know, just a place, you know, kind of like your neighborhood cheers, if you will, where people go and uh, a real mixed crowd, right? Everyone from there's people who play pool regularly to businessmen who stop in after dinner for work, uh, you know, and uh, just other regulars and, uh, you know, rounders that she might find there. But and then the back bar is all music. So there's always been that kind of tale of two bars. The, the, the country music people have always been different. I mean, there's always been an attachment to their fans that was kind of different. They, you know, their, their, their sense of closeness with their fans was different. And I think the horseshoe was that way, not only with the, the artists towards their fans, but to the artists towards uh, Jack and the people who ran the place. Tell us a little bit about that sort of family feeling that you might have got with the country artists who came through. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, it, it certainly was that way. There's, you know, a few stories where... Uh, I mean, Stomp and Tom recounts it in his one of his memoirs, and I, I I shared it in my book that I mean he wanted to play the horseshoe like nowhere else, and in the end he kept persisting, and it got to the point where Jack Starr offered him, uh, you know, a regular gig there, and I mean he basically was in tears, like he it just was so it meant so much to him. And then there's other stories of you know Jack, uh, you know, and his wife and that packing sandwiches for Loretta. Lynn and uh, you know her her band to take back on the bus uh, as they headed back to Nashville uh, and then just the employees I mean there's always been that uh, family atmosphere in terms of the way the employees have been treated uh, you know even going to the present day I mean you'll find there's a couple bartenders that you know have stood behind the bar serving uh, you know the patrons of the horseshoe for over 30 years and I'd say that's pretty unheard of and a lot of other establishments in an industry that probably has a lot of turnover. Yeah, and, and and I guess sometimes tour buses would stop. The the tour buses would pull up on one of the the neighboring streets down in that Queen and Spadina area, and and I guess people could go over to the bus and see the acts uh, over there and get an autograph as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I I know even 
kind of later on, the record companies would set up. They had a coat check in the front, and there'd be artists kind of meet and greets, uh, you know, and signings. And, yeah, like you said, said I mean, oftentimes they'd be uh, there greeting people uh, on their bus before the show. And, uh, yeah, it was a very uh, pretty cool scene that way. And in, in later years, I mean, Jack, again, being the entrepreneur, saw the opportunity, and they ran uh, bus trips out of the Horseshoe that went down to Nashville and to the great, Grand Old Opry. You know, to continue that kind of family of all their fans and patrons who love country music, let's give them a little something else and uh, take them on a little road trip. You're listening to The Full Count. Our guest this episode is uh, David McPherson. His book is The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern. Well, uh, obviously, when Jack finally got tired of running the bar, you can't do that forever. It's not, you know, nightlife and all that is a little bit tough. Uh, many people thought that maybe the bar was done. Then along came the Garys. Who were they and what did they do? Uh, yeah, well, the Garys were an interesting pair. I mean, they're still involved in the music industry today. It was uh, Gary Cormier and Gary Top, and, you know, they had kind of started out uh, at a few other establishments, uh, you know, the, the 99 Cent Roxy, and uh, before they came to uh, the Horseshoe, and uh, they, they kind of, once again, they came in at a time, uh, you know, they were promoters, and they took over uh, bookings at the Horseshoe at a time when it was in a bit of a flux. And like you said, uh, like these places, things, times were changing. Uh, and the surprising thing, they only ran the Horseshoe for about eight months. Uh, but in that time, I mean, it, for anyone who was there, it felt like a lot longer. People I talked to, and it was a real seminal kind of period where they brought in everything from, you know, folk artists like Jesse Winchester to, you know, reggae with the, the I-3s from Bar Marley's band. And it, it did become known more as uh, the punk era because they did bring in a lot of these uh, punk bands uh, that, you know, other places weren't, you know, booking. Um, but uh, they, they kind of always had their ear to the ground, if you will, before anyone else did. And I mean, the perfect example is they had the police play there. Uh, in 1978, and apparently there's only about a dozen people who saw this show. And <laughs> really? then, you know, six six months later, you couldn't go any anywhere without hearing Roxanne on the radio. Yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, the the Garys went out with a bang too. As you say, they're only there for eight months, uh, booking stuff, but changing the, the the character. But I guess they went out with a bang uh, when they finally uh, ended their t their tenure at at, at the, the shoe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of it came down that their time was running out. They. Uh, the manager had said, you know, we're going in a different direction. And so they decided, yeah, let's go out, uh, you know, with a bang, if you will. And uh, they had kind of two final shows. One they, they were calling the uh, the last pogo and the other one the, the last bound up. And one was going to be a night of all the punk bands and the other was going to be a night of all the new wave bands. Well, of course, uh, you know, word got around and this thing kind of grew and grew and, uh you know, you can see a famous photo in the in the book of, uh, you know, the police, police cars out on Queen Street. And, uh, you know, of course, there was, you know, some uh, this gang that kind of showed up and a lot of people, a lot of drinking happening. And uh, unfortunately, it kind of turned into a little mini riot by the uh, the time the night ended. So, yeah, it wasn't the uh, maybe the way they wanted to go out, but it, it certainly left its mark. And uh, uh, there was a great film that uh, Colin Brunham did uh called uh you know about the last pogo so you know lots has been written about it and it's a it's a pretty seminal moment in toronto music history
Yeah, because as the music changes too, the music scene changes, and they're doing it there. I mean, they're affecting the neighborhood. That neighborhood, and the neighborhood is affecting them. I mean, you know, all of a sudden the Peter Pan, all of a sudden the Select Beast, or all of a sudden people start settling on there. The music stores start settling down in that neighborhood, and it starts. You know, it's there's there's kind of a symmetry going on. Yeah, well, definitely. That's the neat thing. I mean, you know, in order to survive, you, you know, you have to adapt with the times. And I think that's one thing that the horseshoe did really well. I mean, I had one little blip in the early 80s uh, where it changed over, uh, you know, for a short period, kind of had gone bankrupt and, you know, a little dance uh, club opened up. But, uh, you know, then they came back, you know, Jack Starr came out of retirement. And as you said, it, it kind of what helped was this new scene, uh, this new art scene on the uh, Queen Street that was happening and you know and talking to uh, Greg Keeler from Blue Rodeo I mean he summarized it well where he said it, it was all artist driven right it wasn't the industry it was all these people realizing you know we were creating this scene and uh, like you said there was places like the Cameron House the Bamboo uh, you know the Horseshoe uh, and then some of these restaurants and uh, it was uh, you know it was OCAD was nearby so a lot of the art it was the artists from an arts community that like, all kind of hung out and uh yeah it was a, a pretty neat scene that kind of started to drive you know the horseshoe in a, an, another new and exciting direction yeah the ontario college of art and design of course okay <laughs> yeah, all those people wandering around and of moses moses nimer moving in city tv just down the street as well certainly certainly a, a lot going on you you mentioned the the blue rodeo face i mean so many famous names playing the uh, the the, uh, the the shoe uh, international and canadian but here's a canadian band that were also you know a little bit about uh, tell us a little bit about how they were kind of down on their luck and they were getting a little bit jaded with the business and 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 how things at the horseshoe turned things around for them yeah well i mean like you can't put all the uh, all the credit to the horseshoe uh, in terms of you know how they uh, their career kind of turned the corner, but it certainly played a large role. And yeah, basically Greg and Jim had moved to New York and they were working down there and, uh, you know, they kind of got jaded with the, the whole scene and kind of moved back to Toronto, you know, wondering, you know, is this going to continue? And, uh, you know, then they put together kind of the, the band, the core band that would be Blue Rodeo and started uh, building up a following. And uh, the Horseshoe was one of those places where, uh, you know, they'd start out and, you know, the buzz started to go around and, you know, next thing you know, they were, uh, you know, selling out multiple nights and uh, their record label, uh, you know, Risky Disc uh, set up in the basement. And it was kind of there where, you know, someone from Warner uh, heard them one night and uh, decided to offer them uh, a record deal. And yeah. uh, that's kind of, you know, it wasn't just there. They did play at a bunch of the other places along, you know, the strip, but uh, the horseshoe certainly was, uh, you know, a key key piece of uh you know them taking their career to the next level and uh, you know even to this day i mean they they fondly love the place and you know for their 70th anniversary shows a, a year or so ago jim cuddy did a credible uh, night with his band and you know you'll often see him there performing with others and you know it, it, things are carried on with his son now playing there and uh, yeah. that's the neat thing about the horseshoe i mean i was just down there on uh, Friday night, first time in a while, and seeing Tom Wilson with his band, Lee Harvey Osmond, and, you know, there's lots of other musicians just in the room out to watch him, and, and that's the cool thing about the, the arts community and the musician community, I mean, they're just as much music fans as the rest of us, and uh, they often come out and support each other. 
Yeah, the independent, the independent spirit that came out of those years, uh, I, I think, still rocks. Who, who was Ralph James, and why was he important to the horseshoe? Oh, Ralph James was uh, was a promoter, and uh, yeah, he was really important in terms of he brought a lot of uh, you know bands, uh, a lot of Canadian bands uh, that kind of followed after Blue Rodeo, you know, bands like The Watchmen and, uh, you know, other bands of that ilk that uh, he brought into the horseshoe and he became kind of, you know, the promoter uh, that, uh, and used that as his home base and as a place to, you know, showcase all these musicians. And uh, so, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, again, that's, you, the horseshoe has touched so many people and uh, it's, had such an impact and there, there's so many people like Ralph who, uh, you know, that place is like a second home to them because of, you know, what it's meant to, you know, their career. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned the, the cross cultural, uh, uh, strains that were always running through that neighborhood and, and, in the horseshoe. T tell us how about, uh, uh, NHL coach Pat Burns and how his name was attached to the horseshoe. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, Dave Hodge, uh, who's, you know, a huge, huge music lover. And uh, over the years, he's, you, if you go out to any concerts, you're like, you know, likely to see him out. And uh, the Horseshoe is a place he's frequented so much over the years. So I think, uh, you know, it was one of those where it was made sense when, uh, you know, they wanted to have a little tribute to Pat Burns. Let's uh, let's do it at the Horseshoe. And, uh, you know, a special night there where, uh, you know, they had lots of musicians and special guests. And uh, that that's the thing you find with the Horseshoe. There's, uh, you never know going in uh, one evening wh who or uh, what you might see. And that, that's, there is always a bit of that element of surprise of, you know, who, who might just show up, uh, which is kind of cool too, adds to the mystique. Yeah, you, 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 of course, are as much a music fan as Dave Hodge. You uh, <laughs> clearly are a guy who loves who loves music and the lore and history. What was it like working on this project for you? Oh, it was, yeah, for me, music is the elixir of life. And, uh, you know, I love live music. I try and see as many shows as I can. And, uh, you know, I'm always uh, collecting, you know, vintage vinyl. And uh, working on this project was a bit of a dream come true. It was a real labor of love. I... Uh, you know, it was fascinating. I've always loved history. I love music. So to combine the two passions and to dig into the history of this was uh, really, really fascinating. And I felt very lucky and humble that, uh, you know, I, I was the one that was able to do this. And it, it was just amazing as I went through the research and then, you know, got to the whole publishing stage, just how supportive everyone was. Uh, you know, Jim Cuddy was kind to write the foreword for my book and, uh, you know, the neat thing at my book launch at the Horseshoe, you know, back in uh, the fall of 2017, I mean, he came up to me uh, when I was signing books and he said, thank you for doing this. And then, you know, here I'm like, what do you mean? Thank me. Like, yeah, but, you know, that's I have a lot of musicians who have told me that, you know, since. I mean, just thanks for capturing this history. I mean, it's so important. That, you know, uh, that's kind of means more to me than uh, anything else. Just uh to hear from the, the artist community that uh, feel this is a, a valuable uh, document. And now, now that's segued into a book on Massey Hall, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, I figured why not uh, take it a, a step further, but uh, yeah, Massey Hall is uh, my other favorite venue uh, and I'm sure treasured venue of so many people. And uh, I figured it was a logical next step. I've seen so many great shows there too over the years and, 
I mean, that history just goes back so much further. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. I'm uh, right in the throes of the research right now and uh, need to get writing because uh, the idea is to have this book ready to go and published when, uh, you know, that iconic hall reopens in the fall of 2020. I'll look forward to that as, as we look forward to this book and, and, and the pictures. For anybody who's a music fan, you don't have to be from Toronto to enjoy uh, the story of the Horseshoe Tavern. The, 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 the story of Canadian music, really, to a large extent, uh, is, is in this book. And uh, I thank you very much, David, for your efforts in putting it together. No, thanks for uh, having me on your show. It's a real pleasure. No problem. Our guest this episode has been David McPherson. His new book is, well, not new book, came out in 2017, but uh, his book is called The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts on iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, podcasts, and my poetry on the website. I'm also appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Radio Channel 167 Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time on Mondays and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Thank you.